How you doing? Oh, what, what, what about it? Okay. Good morning. We, oh, the Lefevers aren't here. That's a big disappointment. One of the things for which I must thank the Lefevers is for introducing me to the great Eddie Izzard. Do we have the clip from Eddie Izzard? This is during his executive transvestite phase. So, yeah. So the pagan, uh, the pagan religion, I don't know a huge amount about it, but it was this earthy thing. But the, Christi, the, the Christianity had split into many different areas. Catholicism still has the fire and brimstone. Boom, 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 boom. Row, ya bastards. <laughs> you know, original sin. What a hellish idea that is. People having to go, Father, bless me for I have sinned. I, I did an original sin. I, I poked a badger with a spoon. <laughs> I've never heard of that one before. Five Hail Marys and two Hello Dollies. All right. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I slept with my next-door neighbor's wife. Heard it. <laughs> I want an original sin. Oh, I'm terrible, sir. <laughs> the Anglican faith doesn't have that. You never go, Vicar, I have done many bad things. Well, so have I. <laughs> what shall I do? Well, drink five Bloody Marys and... Uh... <laughs> won't remember. <clears throat> Original sin. <clears throat> Not like he's talking about. But a terribly controversial and many people offensive doctrine. Original sin, of course, is the idea that by virtue of being human, we are sinful. That having been born of Adam's race, we bear Adam's sin. That there is no way around it, we are sinners, whether we like it or not, by nature and by choice. Paul, in our passage, chapter 5, lays this out clearly and repeatedly. Therefore, starting in verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin isn't reckoned where there's no Torah. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam up to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command like Adam did. He, of course, being a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, 
so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Not a new idea. Remember we read a couple weeks ago in Psalm 51 where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely, David says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So with, as with so many other Christian doctrines, they're derived firmly and reliably from what is taught in the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus honored, that Paul honored, that the writers of the New Testament revered. So what Paul is saying is nothing new. This is not a new idea. But it is, nevertheless, you may have noticed, not a popular one. There are times that some people have objected to this doctrine of original sin because it was too democratic. Ours is not a society that tends to think this way. There are others that do, and so we can laugh at them. This is the Duchess of Buckingham back in the 18th century. She said the doctrine is most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect towards superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and to do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And she wrote to her fellow aristocrat, I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Of course, G.K. Chesterton, another Englishman, this one, a much better person and more democratic, said, only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. I think ours is a society where we don't presume that just because somebody has better breeding or a better class that they're necessarily a better sort of person. We don't so much object to the idea that we would be considered to be wretched just as much as those wretches. Ours is a society, I think, where the predominant understanding is that all people are basically good and really nobody's all that wretched, are they? Some people 
I think, object to this doctrine because they think through it a little bit and they think about the implication. I mean, if everybody is born in sin and if that includes everybody like everybody, like every human being, then you've got a whole lot of sinful babies. Now, those of us who have had children do not dispute this doctrine. (laughs) You have these cute little bundles of depravity popping out of the womb. As they grow, their sins become more and more manifest, more and more destructive, more and more resembling your own. But but then you think, is it really fair for people, or people think about people who are mentally handicapped, people who are somehow unable to respond to the gospel, who have not been exposed to the message of God's grace, is it really fair that they're on the hook for Adam's sin? Some people indeed object to the idea that this sin can somehow be passed generationally. And some of the church fathers had the idea, Steve and I were talking about this this week, had the idea that that somehow this sin was passed generationally and that it was passed somehow through the sexual act, which is why you have the doctrine that Jesus, many of the fathers believe, that the the doctrine of the virgin birth was so important because that way uh, David says, right, I was in sin even when my mother conceived me, but if... Jesus' mother didn't conceive him in sin, then, right, no, then he wouldn't have been sinful, right? And that led in, among the Catholics to the doctrine of, uh, of the Immaculate Conception, where since uh, Mary was involved in this, Mary also had to be sinless, right? So the idea was that Mary was conceived sinless, which leads to my favorite Catholic joke where Jesus is there and, and he says to the woman caught in adultery, he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And this rock comes flying in. He goes, damn it, mom, cut that out. <laughs> now, some people object to that idea that there is somehow this sin that gets passed down generationally. Chris still likes that one. You're going to tell that one at work tomorrow, aren't you? Yeah. Chris works with Catholics. I heard it from a priest, so I'm allowed to tell it. But I think at base, most people don't like the doctrine of original sin because they really just don't think they're all that bad. They really don't think so. I mean, sure, people make mistakes, people have their issues, but maybe some other people are really that bad, but I don't really think all people are, and specifically, most folks don't think they are really all that bad, which is why it's so important doing as we do, that we look at the Word and what the Word says about this. Let's review. Do we have the slides there, Mark, for uh, this morning? Again, let's just take a close look at these passages. The, the beginning, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before Torah was given, sin was in the world. Of course, sin isn't reckoned without Torah. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command like Adam did. It was a pattern of the one to come. Uh, no, back. Yeah, settle down. All right. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death came to all because all sinned. The, through the one man. Who's the one man? It's not Jesus. Adam. Okay, good. All right, just want to make sure you're all tracking. All right, let, next slide. You can go now, Mark. The gift, though, is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow 
to the many. The many died by the trespass of the one man. Next verse. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification or righteousness or rectification. Let's move on. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Let's look at the next one. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. One trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. One more, just because we're having fun with this. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law, Torah, was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mark, let's go back to the 12, the very beginning. We'll have like a a little sing-along, except we won't be singing, especially some of you. All right, let's read together the bold underlying part. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. The many died by the trespass of the one man. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. One trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Let's just look at the next slide. You don't have to read it. Just, Just get the sense of that. It seems like Paul's trying to get across the idea that there's original sin. Am I missing this? It seems like Paul seems to think this is important because he says it half a dozen damn times. You may not like it, but Paul said it. Now you figure out what you're going to do with that. Paul makes it clear that we are born sinful that because of that sin, which the one man brought into the world, we have to deal with the reality not only of sin, but then of death. And again, one more reason why I think some people have difficulty with this doctrine is that they have a tough time with this Adam guy way back when. You find this amusing, Beth? Good. You have a hard time with this Adam guy. I mean, I, I remember when I was working at Black & Decker as a secretary. I was a secretary in the tax department, which has given me the attitude I have toward tax compliance that persists to this day. But I remember when I went into the vice president's office to tell him that I was going to be leaving the company and I was going to be going to seminary and working at my church. And uh, this man is a was a... Uh, uh, not terribly observant Jew, he would uh, 
attend services on the high holy days. We always dreaded Yom Kippur because he had to fast all day, which he did not like, and put him in a terrible mood. But I went in, and, and Harry said, well, you don't really believe in all that Adam and Eve and the snake stuff, do you? I'm thinking this is an odd time for us to have our first theological conversation. <laughs> but I remember thinking at the time, well, yeah, but maybe not in the way you think I do. See, I think there may be another way to read this Adam story that enables us, really in a lot of ways it keeps from enabling us from dismissing it. I think many people will kind of do the math. You figure, okay, at some point, if you're going to say there was a first human being, where did he come from? And I guess you can go with the it's turtles all the way down theory, but, you know, that one where, you know, somebody says, uh, where did the world come from? Well, the world is sitting on the back of a turtle. What's the turtle sitting on? It's sitting on another turtle's back. Well, oh, it's turtles all the way down. But some people have a hard time believing that there was this one first human being. We think about the reality of what we see in the fossil record, carbon dating. We have difficulty believing, even if you don't accept a 6,000-year time span, that there was one person at some point that God created and plopped on the earth. We have all of these fossils that keep linking us back to these earlier hominids. And so you wonder, just how did this story of this one Adam and this one Eve in this one garden get there? And I think one way we can deal with that, of course, is to just dismiss it out of hand as being foolish and unscientific. That's very handy because we can take that attitude and use it to dismiss all sorts of things in the scriptures that we don't like, and many people do that. But I think another way to deal with that is to look at the story, and we talked about this some last week, and to say what exactly is the writer of Genesis doing when he gives us this story about Adam? You'll remember we talked about this last week. Not a whole lot about Adam in the New Testament, but Paul works Adam, the Adam story theologically here, and he does in 1 Corinthians 15, as we'll talk about next week. But If you remember, we talked last week about the fact that the writer, really the compiler of Genesis and the final form that we have it in now was probably putting this together as part of the people Israel in exile or possibly even after exile when they'd been restored to the land but did not have authority over the land like they once did. And in a lot of ways, the abiding question that stands behind so much of The Old Testament, as it's given to us in the form it's in now, is why are we here in the condition we're in? Didn't God make all these promises to us? Didn't he say that we were going to be his people? How come we are in this land and we're not ruling ourselves? How come we have to run our operations in the temple by other authorities? How come we have to get their approval? Heck, how come we had to get some of their money, some of their help to build this stupid thing again? Why was it destroyed? Why do we no longer have this majestic kingship? What happened to the monarchy? Our last king, after all, was allowed as his very last sight to see his sons murdered before his eyes, before his eyes were gouged out, and he was led off to Babylon in chains. That's not exactly, we think, what God had in mind for us at the beginning. 
Why are we here? What are we doing here? And one possible answer to that is if you look at the story of Adam as we get it in Genesis, this is in many ways a story of Israel. This is a story of what happened to God's people, right? Adam is given a place to live by God. He's called out of nothing. He's given a command. He's tempted to disobey that command, and he does. So because of that, he is cast out And life, which once was blessed and prosperous, peaceful and happy, is now hard. And by the sweat of his brow, he grinds a living out from the earth to which he will return all too soon. Of course, we have that same story, don't we? Israel is given a land by God. They're given Torah to live by. Really, they're called out of nothing, out of slavery almost. Almost out of nothing. But they're tempted to disobey. They're tempted to follow the advice of a contender, somebody who wants the allegiance that only is owed to God. And so as a result, they are exiled. They're cast out. And so if we read that story of Adam in that way, then we realize that all Jews, all of the people of Israel, are constituents of these people and therefore of this people's history. So all of the people that Paul was writing to in Rome who were Jewish Christians, Paul would say, along with Paul himself, are part of this story of blessing, commandment, and disobedience nevertheless, which led to exile. But Paul's also writing in Rome not only to Jewish Christians, but to Gentile Christians. There were, in Rome, as we're going to see, is... This gets to be very important in understanding Romans, but there were folks in the church in Rome who were Gentile Christians who came from the nations. And to them, you could read this Adam story as a universal story of humanity. What Genesis 2 and 3 tells us about is the universal human experience. Listen to it that way. Chapter 3, the serpent This is after we know the man and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. But now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, that's not what God really said, is it? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Also not what he said. You're not going to die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden, but Yahweh God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She made me do it. The devil made me do it. Who here can say this is not a story of your life? Who here has not been tempted to sin by seeing that something was good for food, that it satisfied some legitimate desire that you had, some thing that you needed and you saw something that you shouldn't have and it would satisfy that or so you thought. Who here hasn't been attracted by one of those shiny things that are nice to look at, that are pleasing to the eye, that we know we shouldn't have any business with, but they're so nice to look at? Who of us hasn't taken the noble step of succumbing to temptation because it was the right thing to do? It was desirable for gaining wisdom. How could I possibly leave that person? She would have nowhere to go if it weren't for me. Surely. Who hasn't been tempted and who hasn't fallen into temptation? Because something seemed like it would take care of a real need. That it would satisfy some desire to look at something nice. To please the senses. Who hasn't made up some lofty sounding justification for doing what we know we shouldn't do? Who here hasn't been drawn into sin by somebody else telling us it was a good idea when we knew full well it was not a good idea. Who here has not had something passed to them? Who here has not passed something? Who here has not said, I think we should do this? And even though you knew it wasn't a good idea, you did. Who here hasn't had the experience upon getting caught of blaming somebody else? Or of saying at the end, the devil made me do it. Who here can say that this is not their story? G.K. Chesterton said that the doctrine of the original sin is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. It's the only self-evident doctrine. Nobody with any sense of integrity, any real self-awareness, or barring that awareness of others, can deny that it is true that we are all fallen. And at this point in Romans, really, that shouldn't come as a surprise to us, should it? I mean, that's what Paul's been demonstrating for the last four chapters, right? Chapter 1, Gentiles are wicked sinners. All the Jews are on board with that. Chapter 2, so are the Jews. Oh, okay. Chapter 3, let's just kind of drive it home. Everybody is a wicked sinner. All sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 4, let's find out what Abraham figured out about that. Abraham figured out, hmm, that God is able to take care of some problems. Hmm. That faith is the proper response to this God who has every right as we heard Edwards tell us a couple weeks ago, 
every right to cast us into that fiery pit of hellfire. And so here in chapter 5, when we're told that death entered the world through the sin of the one man, through the sin of Adam, we may legitimately wonder, well, why, Paul, do you even have to bring Adam into it? I mean, at this point, you've kind of said all of us are in the same pickle. Why bring up Adam after all? It's going to get very inconvenient several centuries from now when people talk about evolution. There is a reason, though this be madness, yet there is method in it. And I think not only the inspired author Paul, but the inspiring author of the Holy Spirit is doing something with this whole Adam, one man thing. And to see what that is, we will have to come back next week. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we receive the teaching of your word that makes it abundantly clear that we are right to say that. We also receive the good news in your word that this is not the end of the story. And so we pray, Lord, that even as we confess honestly, even as we own the reality of our own sinfulness, I pray that we would also have ears to hear from you, from your word, how it is that you are remedying this situation that is impossible for us to fix. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.